Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Helena Cronin, the co-director of LSE's Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. A big welcome to all of you, and also a very warm welcome to our speaker, Professor David J. Linden. David, it's a great pleasure to have you here. David is a neurobiologist at Johns Hopkins University. He's also the author of two highly successful books that have brought the science of the brain to non-specialist audiences. And this event now celebrates the launch of his third book. It's called Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. You might think of touch as a rather rough-and-ready sort of rather rough and ready compared to the very intricate machinery of, for example, seeing and hearing. But David manages to reveal how natural selection has endowed us with no less wondrous an array of highly specialized precision tools dedicated to the multiple tasks of touch, what Darwin aptly referred to as that perfection of structure which most justly excites our admiration. And David's actually got the advantage over Darwin in excitement because he comes hot-foot with the very latest news from kindred scientific fronts and all of them that are constantly on the move in very rapid progress. An insight into the importance of touch which David draws our attention to in the book is its telling role as metaphor in our language, embedded in our perceptions of the world, from the external physical environment to the realms of our deepest emotions. Think of that very word, feelings, touch feelings, and of what is touching to us in our minds and our hearts, which reminds me, Do judge this book by its cover. It will respond touchingly to your touch. I can't do it now because my hands are too cold, but the clue is here, heat reactive. It's a charming, charming cover. About our program for this evening, the Twitter hashtag for this event is LSELinden. And please put your mobile on silent or turn it off if you're not tweeting. The event is being recorded, and if there are no technical difficulties, a podcast will very soon be available online. David will talk for about 45 minutes and then questions from you for about 15 minutes, and we'll finish by 7.30 p.m. And after that, David's book will be on sale and he will sign copies for you. The title of his talk is Touching and Feeling, a talk, David, that I now invite you to deliver. How's that? Am I suitably amplified? Uh, Thank you, Helena, for the kind introduction, and thanks... uh, Uh, to all of you for coming out tonight. Uh, The way I will do things, I have no PowerPoint, no no visual aids. It will be very low tech. And I will alternate between reading off the page and speaking extemporaneously. 
Malibu, summer 1975, where eight teenage campers huddled around a firing late at night, piled up like puppies spilling over rocks and stumps and the dusty bare dirt of the Santa Monica Mountains, we smell of black sage and acorns and unwashed t-shirts. With no adults in sight and the soft cover of darkness, we give rise to our innermost pubescent thoughts. Your turn, Sam. Okay, this one is for Caroline. Would you rather give an open-mouth kiss to the camp director or eat a live cockroach? Our voices rise in a disgusted, delighted chorus. Ew. You're so gross, Sam. I'm not answering that one. But you have to. These are the rules. No way, you pervert. You're so prickly. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Yeah, right. Okay, here's a clean one. Would you rather die of cold in Antarctica or of heat in the Sahara Desert. I'm not allowed to bring a parka to Antarctica? Nope, you're naked. Then I choose the desert. I want to go out with a good tan. Good-natured howling erupts. Carolyn raises her arms and shimmies, vamping it up. Sam smiles. You're so vain, and, and I've got to go. Everyone knows this is bogus. He's obvious he's crazy about her. No, you don't, you slippery son of a bitch. Now it's my turn. You must give up all your senses except one. Which one do you pick to save? Oh, man, that's rough. I keep sight. Then at least I could get around. No hearing. I, I need my music. Shit, I don't know. That would just suck. Yeah, it would. I'm touched by your concern. Bite me. Bite me. Later, lying in my sleeping bag and mulling over this flirtatious banter, I was puzzled. Flush with hormones, we all hungered for interpersonal touch for kisses and caresses and more. I was typical of this group, so obsessed with the idea of holding and kissing a lovely, dark-haired girl named Lorelei that I could barely speak. Touch was central to our obsessions and fantasies, yet none of us ever chose to preserve it, when in the nights that followed, Carolyn's question about retaining one of our senses returned in the would-you-rather game. Did we simply not think the ramifications through? It's certainly true that a bunch of horny, sleep-deprived, amped-up teenagers sitting around a campfire is not the ideal form for contemplation. Or was it that we could easily imagine what it would be like to experience the loss of sight or hearing? We had all shut our eyes or plugged our ears, or even the taste of smell, yet none of us had ever actually been able to recreate the sensation of the loss of touch. Perhaps touch was woven so deeply into our sense of self that we could not truly imagine life without it. For all of us, the experience of touch is intrinsically emotional, and this is reflected in common expressions in English. In the memoir I just read, phrases like, I'm touched by your concern, or I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, and texture metaphors like, you're so prickly, or that's rough, or you slippery son of a bitch, didn't stand out at all. We're completely accustomed to describing a wide range of human emotions, actions, and personalities in terms of our skin senses. I was touched by her thoughtfulness. It's a sticky situation. That's enough of that coarse language. This is one hairy problem. He rubs me the wrong way. In everyday speech, the tactile is so entangled with the emotional that when we encounter someone who is emotionally clumsy, we call him tactless. Literally, he lacks touch. Now, this may seem like a silly question, but, but it isn't. Why is it that... Emotions are called feelings and not sightings or smellings. Is, is this just a recent metaphor, something that's trivial and, and 
and specific to English and culturally constructed. But in fact, we know that in English, I'm touched uh, to mean I am emotionally affected, and my feelings to mean my tender emotions actually go back uh, as far as old English, as far as the 12th century. And these constructions are found in many other languages, uh, including uh, languages outside of the Indo-European language group. So we know that if you are born blind or if you are born deaf, you can have a terrific life. Your, your mind and your body will develop normally. But if you are born with a sense of touch, but you are deprived of social touch in the first two years, as occurred in Romania under the Ceausescu regime uh, in the grossly understaffed orphanages there, then we know that a series of disasters begins to unfold, that these children who lack loving touch develop uh, compulsive, self-soothing, rocking motions. They uh, have attachment disorders. They have slowed cognition. And the problems aren't limited to their cognitive or emotional function. Uh, they grow more slowly. They uh, have problems with the development of the immune system and the gastrointestinal system. And while these problems can be reversed early in life by the application of 30 minutes a day of, of social touch, if uh, they grow up without social touch for the first two years, at that point the die is cast. And these problems that I mentioned will persist into adulthood. So the end result is that unlike other senses, touch, particularly social touch, interpersonal touch, is not optional for human development. The critical role of touch in, the early, in early development has not always been appreciated. Child-rearing advice from the 1920s from the psychologist John B. Watson, the father of the psychological movement called behaviorism, called cautioned parents about spoiling their children with physical affection. This is my John B. Watson voice. Never let your, let your behavior always be objective and kindly firm. Never hug and kiss them. Never let them sit on your lap. If you must, kiss them once on the forehead when they say goodnight. Shake hands with them in the morning. Give them a pat on the head if they have made an extraordinarily good job of a difficult task. Now, of course, today we don't really subscribe to this parenting advice, uh, uh, which is good. But what we do have are no-touch policies for teachers and other caregivers. And, and these policies derive from a, a genuine and real concern about sexual predation. But the problem is, when you have these policies, the, the predators ignore these policies. And the end result is that appropriate social touching, the children giving, the, the teacher giving the, 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 the scared six-year-old a comforting hug, the sports coach giving a pat on the back for, for, uh, for a job well done, these pro-social touches are eliminated, and uh, as a result, we are all impoverished as a result. You may ask, okay, I understand that kids are sensitive, but once we become adults, why does it matter if we're touch-deprived? This touchy-feely stuff is for hippies and time wasters. Just squirt out another glob of hand sanitizer with that deeply satisfying blurp sound and get back to work. The answer is that interpersonal touch is a crucial form of social glue. 
It can bind sexual partners into lasting couples. It reinforces bonds between parents and their children and between siblings. It connects people in the community and in the workplace, fostering emotions of gratitude, sympathy, and trust. People who are gently touched by a server in a restaurant tend to leave larger tips. Doctors who touch their patients are rated as more caring, and their patients have reduced stress hormone levels and better medical outcomes. Hell, even people with clipboards at the mall, you guys say mall here? <laughs> at the mall, are more likely to get, your petition, get you to sign their petitions or take their surveys if they touch your arm lightly. The main point here is not merely to argue that touch is good or even that touch is important. Rather, it is to explain that the particular organization of our body's touch circuits, from skin to nerves to brain, is a weird, complex, and often counterintuitive system. And the specifics of its organization powerfully influence our lives, from consumer choice to sexual intercourse and from tool use to chronic pain to the process of healing, the gene cells and neural circuits involved in the sense of touch have been crucial to creating our unique human experience. And so, uh, in my day job, I lecture to medical students. So you, you can pardon me for being a little pedantic. I will give you four key points here. There won't be a quiz afterwards. Key point number one, even though we experience it as a unified sensation, touch is created by many different specialized sensors working in parallel. So if we were to look in your skin, we would find nerve endings, and we would find that they are specialized, and that they work in parallel. So there is a nerve ending for heat, and a separate one for cold, and one for pain, actually several for pain, and one for itch, and very likely one for sexual sensation. And there's one for fine tactile form that you would use to use read braille. There's one for high frequency vibrations. There's one for skin stretching. Uh, there's another one for the microscopic slips that allow me to pick up this glass with just the right amount of force so that I don't drop it, but not so much force that I crush it. When you think about this, this is a problem. This is something we do effortlessly without thinking. But to build a robot to do it is, is, is actually a problem. So how does this work? Let's, let's break it down. I go to reach this glass. And I grab it, and as I grab it, I'm grabbing it with an amount of force that's insufficient. I detect through what are called Meisner endings, tiny little slips between my skin and the glass. That sends messages to my spinal cord. My spinal cord has a reflex. My brain doesn't even have to be involved. My spinal cord has a reflex that causes me to grip that glass slightly harder. And then that repeats several times until the slips stop. And at that point, I have gripped it with optimal strength as a result of my Meisner nerve endings. So not all of our skin is the same. Our skin can be divided into two large groups, what's called glabrous skin or hairless skin and hairy skin. And, and places that we don't think of as being hairy often actually are. So for example, uh, uh, Kira Knightley's cheek right here, which would seem to be a very soft spot if we look carefully, it would have tiny little vellus hairs. The inside of the thigh uh, has tiny little hairs. The only places that are hairless are the lips, the uh, palms of the hands, the soles of the feet, portions of the genitals and the nipples. Everywhere else is hairy. And in uh, 
if you look at these different kinds of skin, there's different kinds of receptors, and they're at different densities. So, for example, your, your fingertips have high density of a Merkel ending, and a Merkel ending is very good for detecting fine tactile form. We also have these endings in our lips and in our tongue. So, for example, if you want to read Braille, the, the raised dots uh, that uh, encode uh, letters, uh, you can do that with your, with your fingertips or your lips or your tongue. Now, there are other areas of skin that you might say are very sensitive, like the cornea of, of the eye is very sensitive, a tiny little bit of dirt there. Uh, it doesn't take very much of an indentation of your cornea for you to feel it. Uh, likewise, the skin of the genitals is very sensitive. A tiny indentation there can be felt. But these areas are not discriminative. They don't have the Merkel endings. So what this means is that if you get a little bit of grit in your eye, you can't tell precisely where it is. We call that protopathic sensation. You know it hurts very much, but you can't, tell, you can't localize it precisely. Same way if, if you try to read Braille with your genitals, you, it will fail. <laughs> And those of you who don't, when you leave tonight, if you, if you don't believe me, you can wait till no one's around at the cash point, and you can do the experiment yourself. I, I, I mean, I think experimental science should happen everywhere, not just in the laboratory. Just don't call me for bail if you get arrested. Um, in addition to these sensors I've talked about, hairy skin has a special sensor. There is a sensor called the C-tactile fiber, and it wraps around the base of hair follicles, and it senses hair deflection. And what's remarkable about this sensor is that it is a caress sensor. It is tuned to interpersonal touch. It is activated by precisely those touches that we find to be most pleasurable and most prosocial. And so you've all had this experience. If someone is going to caress you and they move their fingers very, very slowly like this, that doesn't feel loving at all. It feels like an insect, right? And if they skim their fingers like this, that doesn't feel loving either, right? There's an intermediate speed or range of speeds that feels good. About one to two inches per second is what feels good. Likewise, really light pressure, it feels ticklish, and really heavy pressure doesn't feel loving. There's an intermediate pressure as well. And so how does this come about? And the natural way to think of this is, well, all these different s signals are getting sensed by these C-tactile fibers, and the information is going to the brain, and then the brain figures out what feels good. And that's a completely reasonable idea that turns out to be dead wrong. Actually, if you record from single neurons, single C-tactile fiber neurons, say in your arm, in between where you're being caressed and your brain, what you find is that they are most electrically active for precisely those range of caresses that we find to be most pleasurable. So we have a very finely tuned caress-detecting system in our hairy skin. And uh, this is that, not that surprising because we have lived in, through most of our, our human evolution in social groups where we did a lot of social touching. Uh, we're very much like uh, the uh, baboons of northern Ethiopia, the gelata uh, baboons uh, studied by Robin Dunbar in this, in this respect. Uh, these are not unique to the primate lineage. These same uh, C-tactile fibers can also be found in mice, but mice, al mice also have 
social touching uh, and grooming. <coughs> Key point number two, there are separate systems for discriminative and emotional touch. So all these fibers go to the brain and they segregate roughly into two different systems. One of them is called the somatosensory cortex and this is all the facts about touch. Where on my body am I being touched? What is the nature of that touch and how intense is it? Then there is a completely separate system in a region of the brain called the posterior insula and this is the brain's emotional touch system and this is what makes a caress feel good. It's what makes an orgasm feel good. It's what makes pain feel bad. And normally we think, well, these touches are intrinsically pleasurable or painful. Uh, this is deep in the nature of them. But this is a trick your brain is playing on you. It's only because, it's only because the discriminative factual touch system and the emotional touch system are active at once that we have the normal gestalt sensation of either pleasurable or, or emotionally painful touch. Um, so let me give you an example from pain. Normally, if I were to take your thumb and whack it with a hammer, you would say, oh, 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 that hurts, that's terrible. And um, if you had damage to your brain's emotional touch system, to the posterior insula, I whack your thumb with a hammer, and you would say in a very flat voice, yes, that's pain, I suppose. It's very bad. Yep, it hurts a lot. But it would have no emotional resonance for you. Now keep in mind, people who have this aren't masochists, right? For them, pain has a lot of emotional resonance. It's positive emotional resonance. In this case, pain has no emotional quality uh, at all. Now, what if the converse lesion occurs? What if you sustain damage to your somatosensory cortex, but your emotional pain circuitry is intact. Then if I whack you on the thumb with a hammer, you would say, oh, that's awful. And I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. Where does it hurt? And you'd say, I have no idea whatsoever. <laughs> it's only when these two systems work together that we have the gestalt sensations that we're used to. And the same is true with orgasm, right? We think of orgasm as being intrinsically pleasurable. How could we have non-pleasurable orgasms? Well, if you have damage to this emotional touch center and you also have damage to a region called the medial forebrain pleasure circuit, for those of you who care, these are structures called the ventral tegmental area and the nucleus accumbens. If you have damage in these areas, you can have orgasms that are more convulsive than compelling. They are non-pleasurable orgasms. Likewise, sometimes people have orgasms from epileptic seizures. And if the seizure only includes the sensory discriminative parts of the touch circuitry, then these will be non-pleasurable orgasms. And if they invade the pleasure circuit as well, then they will be the kinds of orgasms that one would normally experience. All right. Key point number three, sensation is dependent upon what we expect to happen. So I'd like to describe to you one of my favorite cartoons. And in this cartoon, there's a man and a woman. They're in a car. The man is driving. The woman has a bag of groceries on her lap. And the man says, Pew! Oh, my God! What smells like farts in here? And the woman says, hmm, looking into the bag, 
that's the expensive French cheese we just bought. And the man says, oh, well, in that case, what smells so delicious in here? <laughs> so it's funny, but it actually makes an extraordinarily important point about sensation. You guys okay with a little smut? Everybody okay with smut? If you're not okay with smut, well, that's too bad. <laughs> it was early on in our relationship. B and I had slept together only a few times, and we were very much in the discovery phase about each other's bodies and sexual likes and dislikes. After a wonderful night of lovemaking, we had drifted off to sleep and stirred only many hours later when the bright, annoyingly persistent sunshine slanted through the gaps in the window curtain. We began nuzzling and mumbling, half asleep, happy and hazy. The bed smelled reassuringly funky from the previous night's activities, and the olfactory cloud added to the befuddlement of waking to render the scene unusually dreamlike. As we kissed, I slowly moved my hand over her belly and upward to softly cup her breast. She made an encouraging purr, so I began to gently roll her nipple between my thumb and forefinger. This didn't seem to evoke any reaction at all, which struck me as a bit unusual. Her nipple, which also felt odd between my fingers, suddenly detached entirely from her breast, and I was left holding it in my hand. <laughs> You weren't expecting that, were you? <laughs> At that precise moment, the world ceased to make sense, so I tried to take stock of the situation. A, I was now holding her disembodied nipple in my hand. B, the fact that I was doing so didn't seem to phase her at all. She was giving me a sleepy smile, though it quickly changed to a look of concern in response to my horrified expression. C, there was no blood. My thoughts were in overdrive. I was gaining no cognitive traction at all. How could this possibly be happening? In a conventional tragic incident like a devastating car wreck, our lives are changed in an instant, but the event conforms to a brutal, predictable physics. Objects collide and dissipate force. Gravity and friction exist. However much we are shaken, our core assumptions about the physical world are not violated. But lying there in bed, Late on a sunny morning, I was at once the illusionist in the audience, and I had completely stumped myself. Given my previous life experience, up to that moment, all three of the observations could not be true. Even today, I have no sense of the actual duration of that event, and it's likely that only a few seconds elapsed before I continue to stroke the detached nipple. Then I began to notice that it wasn't the familiar soft, wrinkly bud, but was larger than usual, spongy, and, and faintly waxy. And, and of course, upon continued exploration, I realized that it was not a nipple at all. The spongy object was, in fact, a foam earplug that had come loose in the night and landed on her chest. <laughs> My heart was racing, and I sputtered with relief, though it would be many more seconds, whole cognitive lifetimes, before I could explain to B what happened. <laughs> the detached nipple story illustrates an important point about sensation perception and the difference between the two. The way we perceive a sensory event is not determined simply by the physical parameters of the stimulus involved. For example, 10 grams of force delivered to the thumb, uh, pad of the thumb and the index finger, nor is accounted for by how those stimulus parameters are filtered by the receptors that transduce it 
in this case the response properties of the skin mechanoceptors and the pads of the index fingers and thumb. And even when we add to this data additional information provided by our exploratory behavior, proprioceptive signals from the muscles in the hand and the arm, it's still not enough to account for the ultimate perception of the stimulus. Rather, our perception of a sensory stimulus is crucially dependent upon our expectations as they have been formed by life experience up to that moment. We know that nipples don't just fall off and somehow if they should detach we would expect that bleeding and howls of pain should result. We're confident from what we learned that gravity should operate, living mammalian bodies should be warm and so on. When there is a mismatch between expectation and sensation it's a sign that something weird is happening and our perception of that sensation is fundamentally altered. So, we're talking about sexual sensation. And uh, here, things actually get a little embarrassing. And I, I don't mean personally embarrassing, because obviously I'm willing to tell this story about the detached nipple. I mean embarrassing as a biologist about how ignorant we are. So we know that orgasm can be triggered without any touching at all. It can be, occur in people who have spinal cord injury, who can't feel their bodies. And it can be triggered by touching anywhere. Nonetheless, there is something special about the external clitoris and the gland's penis. These are the areas that convey the strongest sexual sensations and where stimulation is most likely to trigger orgasm. And so you would imagine that if you were to look at these bits of skin under the microscope, you would see something obviously unusual about them. And it's true that there is a type of nerve ending that is present at high density in these regions, and it has a wonderful name. It's called a mucocutaneous end organ. It's even better in German, just trust me on that. <laughs> and uh, this nerve ending is at high density in these places. It's not the only place in the body that has them. Your lips have them. They're a little erotic too, right? Um, but it's not just that they're present at high density in these places. So, for example, if you look at their distribution in the gland's penis, you find that they're not equally distributed in the gland's penis, that there's the highest density in the corona of the penis, the ridge around the head of the penis, and also in the frenulum, which is the, which is the spongy elastic tissue on the underside of the penis. And these are precisely the areas that most men report as giving the strongest sexual sensations. Nonetheless, do we know for sure that the mucocutaneous end organ is the organ of sexual sensation? Embarrassingly, we don't. We, we don't. We, we don't know. And when you think about it, this is an astonishing state of affairs. Sexual sensation motivates so much human behavior. It motivates so many of our laws, our cultural and our religious ideas and taboos, and yet I can't even tell you what nerve cell transduces it. What I can tell you is what happens in the brain uh, at the moment of orgasm. And the reason I can tell you this are from some deeply unromantic experiments that were done in the Netherlands. So I know you all have very good powers of imagination. I'd like you to imagine this experiment. You, you volunteer. I say, I'm going to be in the brain scanning and orgasm experiment. You say, okay, that's fine. Bring along your sweetheart. 
Um, and then you get there, and they strap your head down on the board very tightly because your, your head can't jiggle while you're doing brain imaging. And then your, your head is shoved into this clanging metal tube, which is the brain scanner. And then there's, a, there's an IV in your arm to inject the radioactive water. And then, um, well, if you're a woman, there's, well, there's a probe in your behind because we want to make sure that you're not faking it. And both men and women, when you have a real orgasm as opposed to a fake one, there's a five cycle per second involuntary contraction of the rectal muscles. Um, so there's all this very unromantic stuff, and then your, your nether regions are sticking out into the room, and then there's some geek like me in a white coat with, with a clipboard <laughs> staring at you. And your partner is trying to stimulate you to orgasm, and when you get close, you say, okay, I'm close. And then I say, okay, I'm going to inject the radioactive water in your arm now. <laughs> and it will be of sufficient concentration in your, in your brain for about one minute. So no pressure. Just let it happen. And uh, it's amazing that anyone can achieve orgasm under these. So actually, I have to tell you, the truth is that these, these, um, these experiments were started before Viagra was invented. And at that point, men weren't able to maintain their erections <laughs> in this situation. And these experiments were initially all done on women. But eventually, uh, they got some drugs, and men could be in the experiments. And, uh, and here's what was found. Well, the first thing that was found was that men and women have orgasms that are remarkably similar. And, and this can be told not just with a brain scanner. If you have people write down a description of their orgasms, and then before people read them, you pay someone to take out all of the giveaway words like vagina or penis, and then you have people rate them whether they are are doctors or psychologists or, or, or sexuality experts. No one can tell the difference between the men's and the women's orgasms. And this is reflected in the pattern of brain activation. So what do you see in the brain at the moment of orgasm? Well, you see, not surprisingly, the part of the somatosensory cortex that corresponds to the genitals is activated. And you see the brain's pleasure circuitry is activated. This is the same dopamine-using re region that is activated when you uh, eat food when you're hungry, if you smoke cannabis or, or, or cigarettes or have a glass of whiskey or heroin or cocaine or a number of other drugs, amphetamines. Um, and you also see areas that are deactivated. So your brain has a fear and vigilance circuit uh, called the amygdala, and it is always active at, at least a, a, a background level, but it is turned down to zero at the moment of orgasm. And then your brain's executive function centers, the one involved in, in uh, considering the consequences of your actions and planning and social cognition, those are turned way, way, way down. So, so the moment of orgasm is not the time when you want to make like the crucial decisions about your future. Your brain is not, is not prepared to do it. So it turns out that our experience can be modified, our, our, our experience of touch can be modified by many situational factors, by expectation, uh, by our evolutionary past, and also by, um, by context. And so a very good example comes from combat. So soldiers in the heat of combat can often sustain grievous wounds, 
and not even know that they've been wounded. There was a case in Iraq of a, a United States uh, Army medic named Dwayne Turner, and Dwayne Turner uh, was hit with a fragmentation grenade, uh, and then he, he didn't even notice, and he ran out to pull 12 men to safety. He was shot twice in that process. He didn't even realize he'd been shot. And the other men in his unit said, hey, Dwayne, you've been shot. And he said, no, that blood just got on me from someone else. And they said, no, buddy, you've been shot. And this, it doesn't diminish his heroism at all to note that this is an extremely common circumstance. In the midst of combat, soldiers often don't notice their pain. They often refuse uh, morphine. And yet, that same soldier, three days later, at the field hospital, uh, if someone does an inept job and bungles the blood draw, that minor pain uh, will cause him to complain just like anyone else would. It's not that soldiers are superhuman. They're normal people thrust into extraordinary circumstances. And the reason that occurs is because your brain's higher regions that are involved in attention and emotion and context are sending signals to both the emotional and the discriminative pain centers to damp down sensation. Now, the opposite thing happens uh, with children at the doctor's office. I know I was, I hated injections, routine immunizations when I was a child, and I would remember the last time I was there and there would be all these associations. I'd smell the alcohol pad. I would see the, the wooden cabinets in the doctor's office. I would hear my mother's high-heeled shoes clicking on the linoleum and I would get so nervous and so nervous that when that needle entered my arm, it was like somebody put a steak knife in and twisted it and I would howl with pain. And when you think about it, the pain of an immunization is very tiny. It's much less than skinning your knee on the playground, which I wouldn't hardly notice at all. But the anxiety of the, remem of the past, that is manifest in activity in the prefrontal cortex, which communicates with the brain's emotional pain center in a way that can amp that pain up. Key point and last point, number four, your brain is not built to give you the most accurate representation of the external world. It messes with the data, blends it with emotion and expectation, both genetic and personal, and serves it up to you as real. And this leads me to my final, very brief reading, which is about my children. At about the time they were three years old, my twins, Natalie and Jacob, began to play a game that would inevitably end with tears and injury. Each would stand on one side of the bathroom door, and they would take turns pushing it towards each other and laughing. The kids got along well and never engaged in conventional shoving matches, but they loved the bathroom door game. This activity was fun because each child was blocked from the other's view, giving the door the illusion of agency, as if it had become animated with its own life force, like the objects in their favorite cartoons. Although the game began with gentle pushes, it would inevitably escalate, each push becoming more forceful, until one child would get smacked in the head with the door and a parent would have to calm everyone down. Natalie, why did you push the door into Jacob's face? It's not my fault. We were taking turns, but each time he, I pushed, he pushed harder, so then I would push back the way he did. No, Natalie, Jacob would interject. You're the one who pushed harder, not me. No way, it was you! 
kids, I told them, I don't want you playing the bathroom door game. Someone always gets hurt. Okay, Daddy, they would say in unison, their promise almost immediately beginning to fade from their minds. While there are social factors involved in this escalating force situation, the central explanation for the phenomenon actually comes from the neurobiology of touch processing. We are wired to pay less attention to touch signals that result from our own movements as compared to those that originate in the outside world. For example, when we walk down the street, we barely notice the sensations of our clothing moving against our skin. However, if we experienced those identical sensations while we were standing still, they would be very conspicuous and demand our immediate attention. Who or what is rubbing up against us? This makes sense. Externally generated sensations are the ones that are most likely to demand our attention because they are potentially threatening or otherwise salient. In the bathroom door game, Natalie and Jacob were each trying to match the other's pushing force in alternate turns. However, this is an almost impossible task. When Natalie pushed with two units of force, Jacob felt two units of force on his extended palms. Yet when he tried to match her with an equal amount, he exerted three units of force. Why? Because three units of self-generated force gave him the same feeling of pressure on the skin of his palms as two units of force produced by his sister. Then Natalie felt three units of force from Jacob, and in her attempt to match that, she applied four units, and off they went to Armageddon. So this notion that we are hardwired to attenuate the sensory consequences that result from our own motions has rears its head in two ways. It explains, for one, why 45% of all internet traffic is pornography, and it explains also why we can't tickle ourselves. And I'll, I'll, I'll do the second one first. Uh, so when you go to tickle yourself, your brain is sending messages to contract uh, muscles in your arm and in your fingers. And those messages don't just go to your muscles. Copies of those messages also go to a brain region called the cerebellum, in the cerebellum, they're converted into inhibitory electrical signals, and they are conveyed to your somatosensory cortex, where they dampen the sensation of tickling. And so you can't tickle yourself because of that self-damping unless you have damage to your cerebellum, in which case you can tickle yourself. Now you can think, all right, I can't tickle myself but I can masturbate. I can self-stimulate that way. Um, but here's the thing. When you masturbate, you, your brain is also attenuating that self-generated stimulation. And so how can you overcome that? Well, one very popular way is to look at pornography. And when you look at pornography and uh, you watch that sexual activity, it activates the emotional touch regions in your brain, and that activity counteracts the self-attenuation from the self-stimulatory motion and makes it easier to achieve orgasm. And this is such an important phenomenon that this is why the internet is overwhelmed with porn. So. Getting away from porn now, and I realize that there's been rather a lot of smut in this talk. Um, I think the general point is this. 
we like to feel like we are driving the bus. We like to feel that we, our senses provide us with an accurate representation of the external world and that if necessary we can take in that vertical information and make rational decisions based upon that. And I think the most important aspect of, of neurobiological understanding of sensation of which touches one exemplar is that we can't do this. Our, our, our brain and nerves cherry-pick data in the external world that ignores certain things and uh, boosts other things in a way that has been evolutionarily driven. And then that information is combined with both our species' inbred expectations about the world, like things like gravity operates and the sun is up here in the sky as opposed to down there in the ground, uh, as well as our individual life history. And it is blended with emotion from the very first moment we are consciously aware of uh, sensation. So uh, we're not driving the bus after all. Thank you very much for your attention, and I'm happy to take some questions for the main interesting lecture. Just before we get to the questions, um, wait for the roving microphone to come to you and try to keep your question brief. We haven't got a lot of time. And do ask a question, please, not a lecture. And if you don't mind, tell us your name and where you come from. If you really don't want to, then don't. Um, this one first. And... Yeah. Um, um, quick question. Um, uh, my name is Yanni Anchisek. I'm an environmental psychologist from London. Um, oxytocin is not, even, uh, is not mentioned even once in your book. Why? Oxytocin isn't mentioned once in my book because it was mentioned in my previous book. I had a whole chapter about it. <laughs> but, I, I, I mean, that's a little bit of a glib answer. Uh, so we, oxytocin, for those, it's been a lot in the media, so I think you've probably all heard about it. Oxytocin has been in the media as the cuddle hormone. It is uh, released in women when they breastfeed or otherwise attend to their children. It's released in both women and uh, men in the afterglow period following orgasm. and appears to be important in bonding. Uh, if you give people oxytocin, they become more trusting in laboratory game situations. And for a while, it was just believed that oxytocin only had one face, that it was... Uh, about, it was about creating trusting bonds. We now know that there's another side to oxytocin and that it makes you more xenophobic. Uh, it also increases, in addition to uh, increasing your bonding with the people who are like you, it also uh, makes you more suspicious and less trusting of uh, outside groups. So uh, I think there's a lot to still be revealed about the uh, biology of oxytocin. Uh, hi, I'm Yazi. I'm from UC. Could we just have some more hands up? And so the yes, there. You'll be next. Thank you. Um, I'm Yazi. I'm from UCL. At the begin uh, beginning, you talked about the, um, the, inf the the influence of touching on the development of children. I'm uh, sorry, I didn't hear the word. The influence of 
of touching on the development of children. Yes. So I'm just wondering, like, um, are there any cross-cultural study about the cultural difference on the influence of touching on the on, on children, because I'm, I'm from China, and uh, I know within the Chinese culture, like, there are not that much, like, physical contact between the parents and the children in the family, so I'm just wondering, like, does that mean the children from China, they just grow up, like, less emotionally sensitive than the children from the West? Could That's you just a, repeat the question? So the question is, there are cross-cultural differences in touching, both in child-rearing and in adults, and are there studies that would indicate if there are sequelae, consequences of, uh, of those differences in terms of then social interaction later on? And that's a great question, and the answer is that I'm not aware of any good studies on that to date. What we do know are there are some analogous studies with rats, and you might think, eh, rats, who cares? But Rat mothers lick and groom their pups to very different degrees. There are high licking grooming mothers and there are low licking grooming mothers. And interestingly, uh, if you are a female rat pup of a low licking grooming mother, when you grow up, you're likely to be a low licking grooming mother. And if you are a pup of a high licking grooming mother, when you grow up, you're likely to be a high-licking grooming mother. And you might think, ah, well, that means it's heritable. It's genetic. Well, it isn't, actually. If you cross-foster the pups, if you take a pup from a high-licking grooming mother and put her in a low-licking grooming brood, then she will grow up to be low-licking grooming herself. And so it's an interesting question, then. Well, if you look at the pups from low-licking grooming mothers, it turns out that they are more fearful they have higher stress hormone levels. Uh, they are less exploratory in novel environments. They are less willing to try new foods. And you might think, well, but these all sound like bad things. Why wouldn't low licking grooming just be just just be selected against? Well, first of all. It's not a genetic factor, so you can't select against it. Then you might say, well, but then why wouldn't it sort of behaviorally be selected against? And the answer is it has to do really with work-life balance. So, well, it's true. So if you are a rat and you live in the wild in a place where there's lots of food nearby and you don't have to roam very far to get your food, then you have lots of time to lick and groom your pups. And it's advantageous to have pups that are not very nervous. But if you live in an environment where there's lots of predators and where you have to roam very widely to get your food, it's actually adaptive to have pups that have higher stress reactivity. And of course, it is adaptive to gather enough food to feed them. I realize that probably wasn't quite the answer you were looking for. <laughs> um, just before you, any, any further questions, we can get the microphone. The microphone over there, please. And now your question. Hi, my name's Jonathan. Um, Sorry, I missed the first part of your talk, but um, how much is synesthesia involved with touching? I don't know if you, you covered that. Um, so I didn't cover that. So uh, the question is, how is much is touch involved in synesthesia? So for those of you who don't know, synesthesia is a, a phenomenon in which one sensory modality or, or even uh, an idea in a sensory modality 
uh, can trigger something else. So for some people, every time they hear a particular musical note, they have a particular taste on their tongue. When they see a particular number, all the numbers have colors associated with them cognitively. And what's interesting about synesthesia, it doesn't work two ways. In other words, if you have, say, sound to taste synesthesia, you will never also have taste to sound synesthesia in the reverse direction. So what I can tell you is that there are synesthetic experiences that do involve taste both in the trigger and in the recipient mode, but they're much less, that, that involve touch, they're much less common than um, things like color number uh, synesthesia or color grapheme uh, synesthesia. So the way, just, just to, actually, let me just talk about this another, because it's an interesting topic. The way synesthesia is thought to happen uh, is that your, your brain has areas that are specialized for different senses, and then a bunch of areas where sensory information mixes together. But generally speaking, this is fairly well controlled during development. Uh, early in development, there's a lot of intermixing for example, you have a lot of visual information going into your auditory areas, a lot of auditory information going into your visual areas, but in early postnatal life, experience sorts these out so that most of the vision fibers go to the visual areas of the brain and most of the auditory fibers go to the auditory areas of the brain. And it's thought that a partial failure in that sorting is what gives rise to synesthetic sensation. And because the somatosensory cortex uh, is right in an area that, that, that adjoins these other sensory cortexes for, for, for sensations like vision and hearing, it can also participate, be an anatomical substrate for synesthesia. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Who, who, well, did somebody have the microphone next? Yeah. Yes, I thought so. Hi. Sorry. I'm sorry, and after that there was somebody over here. Yes. Hi, I'm Nana. I'm doing a master course in Goldsmiths. Could you go nearer to the microphone? Yes, th sorry. Uh, I was thinking about the thing that you said, uh, that uh, the lack of social touch for children in the first two years of their lives. Yes. And I was wondering if there are any similar consequences to lives of people in, uh, l later in their lives. I mean, for example, maybe some people have grown up with all this social touch and love and touching and feeling and whatever, but maybe later they have this lack for several reasons, like uh, maybe all of us have been here in London away from our families and friends, and we are also having this lack, for example. Right, so that's a very good question. The question, I'll repeat it, is... Uh, are there consequences in adulthood to being uh, social, uh, deprived of social touch? And the answer is yes, there certainly are, and those consequences actually uh, become greater and greater the older you are. Uh, so we know, for example, that if you study sports teams uh, and you look at their celebratory touch, so in American basketball, uh, uh, after points, Players like to, you know, chest bump and high five and pat each other on the rear end and do all these sorts of things. And the teams that do the most of that early in the season 
uh, are more likely to win later in the season and they're more likely to play in a cooperative team-like fashion where they pass the ball a lot to, to other players rather than hogging it for their own personal glory. We know that the bad news is that the highest density of, of touch nerve endings in the skin is at about age 20 and then you lose them at about 1% every year your whole life. And you don't, it happens so slowly you don't notice it when you're young and you don't really notice it when you're middle age but by the time you're elderly you have lost a lot of different touch receptors. Interestingly you lose all kinds, you lose pain, sexual sensation, light touch, etc. And this has some major medical consequences. Uh, part of the reason why the elderly are so likely to have devastating falls, well there are a number of reasons having to do with muscle strength and balance, but one of the reasons is it's harder to feel the ground under your feet because you've lost so many touch sensors in the soles of your feet. Um, uh, another problem is that when you've lost so many touch pain touch sensors, if you were in an institutional setting and you develop a bed sore, you would think that the pain of that would be immediately noticeable and it would lead to immediate treatment. But when you lose a lot of pain sensors, you can't feel it. And uh, as a consequence, these sores get worse and worse. But I think uh, in more direct response to your question, what we know is that in the elderly, a lot of times people are really very strongly touch deprived. Say you've lost, uh, you've lost your partner, maybe your children aren't around very much, perhaps you're in an institutional setting. Uh, what we know in that situation is that social touch, even from a caregiver, from a massage therapist, excuse me, massage here in the UK, right? A massage therapist uh, would, uh, produces uh, tremendous benefits. Uh, it produces, uh, it reduces depression, it reduces anxiety. In people with dementia, it reduces their outbursts and their, and their agitation. So what I would say is that, um, Social touch is crucial throughout your life. It's best to get it with people with whom you have a social bond, but it's not bad to uh, pay for it either. <laughs> I don't mean prostitution. Uh, last question. Who's um, oh, Yeah, I've got the mic. I thought somebody had the... Rip yeah, I have it here. Um, oh, you have, yes. Yeah. Uh, Elise Kirtley, thanks for such an interesting talk. Um, that segued on to what I was going to ask nicely. I'm a dementia care consultant. Yes. Um, and I was just wondering about the links between two things. One, um, the touch with those two sides of the brain, the discriminatory and the emotional, being perhaps misrepresented or one side not working. Perhaps in conjunction with that sensation being dependent on what we expect to happen. So what if you're living in the past where there was a trauma, basically, and you're receiving touch but it's not being interpreted properly? I was just wondering if there was any research on sort of what we horribly label as challenging behavior in dementia care and these kind of misconstrued emotions. Well, that's, that's a great question. So there are a lot of situations in which people become averse to social touch. Mm -hmm. And dementia, some dementia patients, not all, as you know, are one of them. It often happens in people on the autism spectrum and we don't really know why. Uh, and then it, there are a number of people who just don't like interpersonal touch for whatever reason and maybe because of some traumatic event in their youth but I think it's worthwhile considering another contributor and that is genetic variation. So you, you may know like okay let's, let's, let's see 
how many, raise your hands if you believe that cilantro tastes like soap. <laughs> if you are a cilantro hater. Oh, coriander leaf. <laughs> Thank you very much. If coriander leaf is aversive to you, raise your hand. How many coriander, okay. All right, all of you with your hands up, you all have a mutation in one of your odorant receptors in your nose. There are about 300 to 400 odorant receptors in the human nose, and if you carry a particular mutation in that receptor, that will make you a coriander hater. It's not a result of experience, it's a result of genetic variation. Now, it may well be that there are similar mutations in either the nerve endings, in the proteins that are involved in transducing touch, or perhaps in certain brain regions that process touch information, that make people more or less averse to social touch. Mm -hmm. Now, in terms of your specific question about uh, dementia, I don't actually know. Uh, I haven't read about studies about dementia and aversion uh, to social touch. What, what we do know, though, is that one's mental state can modulate one's touch experience enormously. And the best known example has to do with depression and pain. So people who are undergoing major depression are several times more likely to experience chronic pain than, uh, than people who are not depressed. And actually this brings up an interesting biologically based metaphor. So we speak of emotional pain, mm -hmm. heartbreak, hurt feelings. And I know a number of years ago, I would have, if someone had asked me, well, <coughs> is there a biological basis for this? I would have said no. No, this is just like, uh, uh, you know, this is just metaphorical language. That's like saying he's got a face like an unmade bed, right? <laughs> and it turns out not to be the case. So if you put someone on a brain scanner, and you hurt their feelings if you exclude them socially in a virtual ball-playing game, or worse, if you have them read a you've-been-dumped letter from their sweetheart. Um, you activate the posterior insula. You activate the same emotional touch center that gives the negative emotional content to, say, being whacked on the thumb mm -hmm. with a hammer. So uh, the metaphor is created by overlapping patterns of brain activation. I'm afraid that must be the last question. There were so many people who wanted to ask questions. I do apologize. Um, David's book will be on sale directly outside the lecture theater, and he'll be there to sign the books for you, and a, a queuing system will be organized. Thank you to everybody here for coming this evening, being so very engaged and such an attentive, attractive audience. And David, thank you again for a really excellent Thank lecture. you for having me. Thanks to all of you for coming.